Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 214, Shelving It. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. You can find out more from the Knitting Out Loud catalog at www.knittingoutloud.com. Also, Knit Circus, the online magazine featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can see their latest issue at www.knitcircus.com. And holiday vacations and craft lit take you on the road to Rhinebeck. Join us this fall for a week of gorgeous fall foliage, as well as all sorts of fibery, crafty, and literary jaunts. Well, I'm not shelving the podcast, in case you wondered. I am, however, shelving everything in my possession. I finally got to IKEA. I know. But wow, was I able to get what I needed. I got fabulous shelves. I'm surrounded by shelves. And they're the kind that are more like cubbyhole shelves, but they're not the small cubbyhole shelves. So this will hold like my oversized knitting books, as well as all sorts of stuff. And I am actually finally, for the first time in my life, starting to put things in an organized manner in shelves where I can still see everything so it still exists. And find what I need when I need it. It's heaven. So I'm, I'm very relieved. I'm finally starting to sleep at night because I'm able to put things away and find things when I need them. And that's one of the reasons why I haven't been writing back to people very quickly. It's just been so hard. You know, I've, sometimes I can print out things and then I can't find the papers anymore because the kids or I have moved them. Anyway, long story short, things are getting better. We're also getting some weather, which is lovely. There are clouds outside right now. It's great. Tomorrow's the 4th of July. We are in Fireworks Central here in Northern Virginia. I'm not kidding either. I think every single high school in every single township or park has fireworks that they're putting off. So even if you can't go to one place, pretty much I think you could just look out your window and go, oh, wow, look at these six different fireworks displays. And of course, there are the fireworks at the nation's capital, but it may be cloudy tomorrow night, and the ones at the, the capital, as I recall, go way high up in the sky, and if it's cloudy, we may have two small children who really are kind of frustrated. So, I think we're probably going to stay closer to home with friends. I hope your plans are all coming along swimmingly, if you are in the lower 48 or the extended 50, and... um. Before I get too far into this week's show, I wanted to let people know there have been some conversations that I was having on Ravelry and some anonymous comments that were left on the show notes. And this is something that had been kind of banging around my head for a long time. And finally, I realized there was actually an easy way I could do this. So I have created... And I'm working on getting all the audio up to date. It will take some time, as you can imagine, with 2,213 episodes. It feels like 2,000. Uh, I have created a parallel podcast. It is called Just the Books. 
it is an offshoot of Craftlet in that I will be basically removing all of the opening talk, anything personal, anything crafty, anything knitting, and I will just leave the book explanatory stuff and the book audio. That means for those of you who are annoyed by having to fast forward or try and hunt on the show notes for the, the time code for what you should fast forward to, you will no longer have that problem because there will be a parallel episode. When I upload the new one, I will be uploading the parallel. Um, so that's pretty nifty. The other thing that we've been trying to figure out how to fix, and I'm, I'm still... The, the rhythm of the show and the opening of the show is complicated. And it's complicated for a lot of reasons. And changing it is a little fraught because I have gotten emails from people saying that, you know, their heart leaps up like a rainbow in the sky when they hear the opening music. And it, it's, it's very difficult to, to change an opening because you're used to a rhythm and I'm used to a rhythm. And even something as simple as changing where I'm podcasting from, which sounds pretty simple, was pretty fraught. As those of you who wrote back and forth with me have, have noticed, I wound up using bits and pieces of different ideas, but nothing kind of rhythmically worked with my mouth until I hit upon the pattern that I'm saying now. So all of this is a long way to say there are still problems with Craftlet that have to do with getting information out on what chapter, what book, what author, um, getting the the code that it's posted under correct so that you can see the title in the iPod or MP3 window. But there are other people who, who also want to know what book and what uh, chapter because it would make it so much easier you know, for anyone who's on a small MP3 player to know where you are at in a book. Well, the first thing I did, because it was the easiest thing to do, was to go on to the Craftlet website. And I've added a currently listening to Wilkie Collins, The Women in White. The book starts at episode 192. So anyone who's tuning in, I hope they will go to the show notes and see that. Um, it's certainly something that I can try and announce at the the beginning of, of every episode that if you're tuning in new go back to 192 that's the beginning of this book um so that's one thing that's fairly easy to fix the other issues are, are going to take more time because as as those of you who are writing back and forth with me on Ravelry know uh I I get a lot of competing requests where one person asks for one thing and another person asks for something that absolutely contradicts it so I, I kind of have to weigh how drastic the changes are and in what direction the changes go based on kind of the, the total volume of comments and questions and requests are that I get. And many of them come in by email, so you don't see them on Ravelry. And many of them came in before Ravelry was even invented. So I'm listening and I'm trying to make things better. And your comments help me enormously. Also, because when we're on Ravelry, you can help me problem solve the, the contradictions in, in what I'm being asked to do. All of that being said, I am going through all of the old audio. I am cutting the crafty talk. I am re-releasing all of that audio under the Just the Books imprint. <laughs> I will have a direct link to just 
just the books from the Craftlet site. So that if you want to switch over, you basically won't miss anything except me. You'll still hear me talking about the books and that's and that's it. And that's fine. And it, in some ways, it's kind of nice for me because it gives me a chance to go back to the very first episodes and replace the audio of the book. Those of you who've been with me since the beginning, we started when LibriVox was very young too, and there was only one reader of Pride and Prejudice. There are now many, and one of the readers is the same woman who read Persuasion and did such a lovely job with it. And so I'm, I'm able to replace the audio with just her. So if you have friends who you think would enjoy having a show that feeds you book info, but not really so hip on the crafty chitty chatty part, then you now have a place to send them. And I'm going backwards in time. And I am starting with episode one, it's going to take me a while to get up to right now. Uh, I want to post them in the same order that I originally posted them in for lots of complicated reasons. And so I ask your forbearance while I while I do that, I won't have this episode 214 in a parallel post for a little while yet. But it it will happen. Now, on uh, Ravelry, I had lots of conversations, and it's taken me a while to get onto Ravelry to extract information. But there was one uh, one post from Kate, which I thought was really, really interesting. And I'm just going to read, read her comment and then uh, reply it basically to her. One thing that's surprising me in Heather's commentary on this book so far is that she hasn't mentioned the taming of the shrew, particularly since she does keep talking about Shakespeare in relation to Chopbard. I'm currently in episode 204, so she's a ways back, and both Count Fosco and Glyde seem to me to have taken that play far too much to heart. Not that any of the women deserve such treatment, mind you, Catherine doesn't either. Admittedly, it's lots of years since I read Taming of the Shrew, and I've never seen it performed, but it would seem relevant to me. Yes, sort of. Um, and being back at, at 2004, I can really see why this popped into Kate's mind, and I'm sure it popped, if it popped into one person's mind, then it popped into many minds. It's like a 10% rule. If one person is saying it, 10% think it. Um, the reason why I haven't talked about Shrew is twofold. One, I really don't like that play. I mean, when it's done well, you can kind of suspend your horror at the way Catherine is treated. And that's fine. But I haven't, I haven't seen a version of it that can hold you in that state all the way through the ending. And the ending I find really deeply unpleasant. That being said, you know, it's Shakespeare and it's worth to see, it's a worth it to see Taming of the Shrew just because so many people like Kate refer back to it. And so you kind of miss the nuance of why she's asking that if you haven't read or seen the play. So I'm not saying to not go see Shrew or read it, but I am saying that once you get past that opening where Fosco and his wife, I, I certainly see Fosco and his wife as more of a shrew situation because she was kind of a shrew and he's clearly put her in her place. Um, Taming of the Shrew, when it's done for comedic value, is much more lighthearted than whatever is going on with Fosco and his wife. And it, it, I think if I had brought Shrew up at the time, I would have sort of felt like I was belittling whatever 
had to have happened. I mean, I've gotten some very interesting emails, and I know I haven't read them because I was traveling. But people talking about uh, breaking a horse or or training an animal that the the way Count Fosco's wife looks at him, treats him, behaves for him, shows that there has been a great deal of, I will use the word training, but what I really mean is abuse. And that there is no humor in what we all started to pick up on with, with Fosco and his wife. And um, I think to, to bring up a comedy, I would have felt a little uncomfortable doing it. Again, that's just because I knew what was coming later, not because early on in the book that shouldn't have been popping into your head. I think, I think it probably would be wrong for it not to. So I probably should have mentioned it back then, if, if only just to kind of assuage everybody in thinking, God, why isn't she mentioning that? The other thing I wanted to announce, and this is off of the women in white conversation. There are two off of the women in white conversation, but related to Craftlet comments. One, uh, one of our listeners, Tammy in Texas, recently watched Easy A. Now, if you haven't seen this movie yet, you must. I cannot for the life of me recall whether I mentioned this in an earlier episode. They did a movie uh, that is so connected to the Scarlet Letter, and it resonates so much more when you have read the Scarlet Letter. But it's a uh, it's a wonderful, um, smart, snarky film, and uh, and the actress who's in it is popping up in more and more films. And I'm every time she shows up, she's just she sparkles. She's just so kind of normal, and really really funny in the same same way that Ellen Page was in Juno, except. The girl in Easy A has more energy under her. She's more of a firecracker. So if you haven't seen it, Easy A, lots of fun. So thank you, Tammy, for reminding me. The second off-topic, but on Craftlit comment that I needed to give you is from a listener who actually has made a study of British naval hierarchies and history. And she's in the middle of persuasion right now. And at my at my uh, ask, you know, begging her, she has gone back into the show notes for persuasion. And she has posted a very thorough comment about kind of my confusion about how some people were referring to the different men who were in the Navy, that there seemed to be some some hierarchy information that I wasn't understanding and that I couldn't learn from from whatever it was that I was reading. Well, this listener nailed it. She knew everything. And so all of that information is now in the show notes in a comment on one of the persuasion posts. I will link to that post so that uh, so that you can get back there and uh, and read that excellent comment. The last thing before we get to our chapters today, I got a very heart melt, heart melt, <gasps> heartfelt uh, Ravelry message from Joy Lynn. You may recall Joy Lynn from ages and ages ago. She makes beautiful bookmarks and she's on Ravelry too. And she said uh, she wanted to let me let you know a few things. Now, admittedly, this was sent to me at the beginning of June and I have not logged on to Ravelry until like the 27th of June. So 
this may not any longer be as relevant as it used to be, but knowing how quickly things fall off the media radar, I still felt it was a good idea to remind people of the following. Uh, there was a tornado in Massachusetts, and Sturbridge Village, where we will be going on our tour, got hit, but not badly. Um, however, Joy Lynn said, I was out yesterday with my eight-year-old boys delivering water and ice via shopping carriage to the folks working in the hardest-hit areas. I have to say the sense of community and can-do attitude is wonderful. Several of my friends have lost absolutely everything. I saw one friend who has only a cellar hole left, taking a break from her work. Her response to all this devastation? It's just stuff. If you have any listeners who may want to help, Monson Savings Bank has set up a Monson Tornado Fund for donations, which will go directly to help Monson residents. Donations of any amount can be made at any of their branches, or they can be mailed to, and I'll put this in the show notes, Monson Tornado Fund at Monson Savings Bank, 146 Main Street, Monson, Massachusetts, 01057. For people living in the area who want to come help, we are in need of boxes, packing tape, large trash bags, and plastic storage bins for residents to put their belongings into. Retail and grocery stores will donate their empty boxes if anyone calls ahead. If anyone is coming to Monson to see the damage or to visit, please ask them to bring these items and give them directly to the residents. It's the easiest and fastest way to get things to them. If anyone or their menfolk have chainsaws and some muscle, just show up and offer to help anyone you see. Sturdy shoes, work gloves, and sunblock are a must. Oh, and pack a lunch. Dunkin' Donuts and several restaurants are open if you prefer. The hardest hit areas are Bethany Road, Stewart Avenue, Ellie Road, Coat Road. Most volunteers are heading there, but the moderately damaged areas aren't getting the volunteers they need. The Greater Springfield YMCA is offering their showering and recreation facilities to the victims as well. We're trying to get the word out to the most people we can, and so I am trying to help them do that. I know it's late, but as I said, you know, the media is fickle, and just because it's been 20 days doesn't mean people still aren't cleaning up. And, I, you know, we've seen, you see so much of that, where if you live in a, an earthquake zone, that the cameras are gone, but the devastation is still there. So if you're in Massachusetts and, and have the time inclination or wherewithal to, to get there and help or to see if they still need help, uh, please, please do and, and donate if you can, because uh, just because cameras aren't there doesn't mean the money isn't needed either. Which brings me to my last comment, which actually does sort of relate to today's chapters. My husband's reading a very interesting book called Switch, and I will put a link to that in the show notes. And... Uh, the book is about a lot of different things, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase for you because it would be a long passage for me to read. There's a section where they talk about a town in the Midwest that was dying. You and I both know about this. You know, everybody's moving out. It's uh, rural life or small town life. Everybody's moving to the big cities, and towns are slowly dying, literally, which actually Walter Hartwright talks about in the book today. Well, evidently, in one of these small Midwestern towns, uh, the high school students started to be concerned about what was happening to their home. And so they, they did some research, and they crunched the numbers, and they did the math, and, you know, it, it became all these big foundations were coming and going, well, maybe if we rebuild Main Street, we'll be able to draw people back to this area. And these huge project ideas were being pitched around with all these massive changes that could be done at great cost 
to the community. And, and no one disagreed. They all knew that downtown needed a fresh coat of paint. You know, that, that wasn't under dispute. But there's a big difference between a fresh, fresh coat of paint and putting in a multiplex theater center, which costs millions. Well, here's what the students found out. If everyone would just spend, I think it was $20, maybe it was $40 extra a month in town, and not, not extra even, but just instead of spending that money at the Walmart down the, store, down the street, if you would spend it at the local hardware store or at the local grocery store or at some of the local clothing stores or whatever, if everybody spent $40 a month in town that they would otherwise take elsewhere, they could save the town. That was it. That was the big solution. And it worked. <laughs> and not only did it work, but they were able to afford their fresh coat of paint. And they actually, I can't remember what my husband said the revenue difference was, but it was extraordinary. And so it's just, you know, crafty people. It made me think of all the things that, whether it's because we look at things more creatively or, or because knitting is a very simple activity, you know, it's two sticks and a ball string. I, I don't know, but as soon as I heard that, I thought, ooh, I need to, I need to announce that to the craftlet people because that's exactly the kind of thinking that people who are crafty do. And how cool is that? Just moving that small an amount of money around saved a town. Ah, I love that. So, this week we went to the Museum of Natural History here in Washington, D.C. and got to see two IMAX movies, which I'm going to tell you about, so that if you are near an IMAX theater and have any opportunity to do so, uh, you might want to take the kids. One was the Tornado IMAX, which was all, it's, I think it's become Storm Chasers, but to see it on an IMAX screen was really quite something. The second, which I'd never seen before, was a Grand Canyon 3D movie. And I have not had the opportunity to go down the Grand Canyon in a raft, but my mom has, and I've seen all of her pictures and heard her stories. They do a beautiful job in this film of really letting you feel like you're there and that you're part of the action when there is action, but also that you're part of the landscape and that you really understand what's going on with the landscape. I don't think people outside of Arizona have a really clear picture of the dire straits that northern Arizona, but the entire state as well, are in when it comes to water. And there are some really kind of graphic displays where they show you Lake Powell and uh, and uh, areas outside the, the Glen, Can Glen Canyon Dam. And... Um, and when they show you the, the Hoover Dam and you can see these white walls above the waterline and they're, you know, 30 or 40 feet up the canyon walls. That's the, the mark that the water used to be at. That, and I think they said, I, I think they said that Glen Canyon, that Lake Powell has lost 30% of its water in the last 10 years just to, due to evaporation, which is kind of like, you know, hello. You put a large body of water into the desert and you think it's not going to evaporate? I don't know who the geniuses were who came up with that or the California River Water Project where you have uncovered canals going through Arizona delivering water to Phoenix. You got me. Anybody who's listening who knows the answer to that, please email me. That has been bugging me since I was 15 years old. What are you thinking? 
So it was very interesting because I know the entire population of the world could all fit into Texas and be very happy doing it, but there's not enough water to handle that. Not enough clean, fresh drinking water. Obviously, there's plenty of ocean water right now. So it's a very interesting movie and it's not, I'm making it sound more political than it actually is. It's not political. It's just, gosh, that's a beautiful place. And oh my gosh, the water's running out. And, uh, and oh, and when you see it, you should know they show Lake Chad in Africa. My dad talked to me about that in the 80s because he, he was either working with people who were trying to figure that out or working on it. Anyway, very interesting movie. If you're anywhere near an IMAX theater and get a chance to, the tornado film is great and the 3D Grand Canyon is great. I also saw Midnight in Paris, but that's a different kind of movie. That was lovely. I like Owen Wilson, even when he's kind of being Woody Allen. And Marianne Cotillard, God, that woman is beautiful and so still and so graceful. I want to be her. Speaking of women you want to be, okay, here we go. Now we are on to Women in White. The the Women in White this week is interesting because, uh, again, like a lost episode, many things are answered, new things are uncovered. You're going to feel like you got a big answer this week, probably bigger than it actually is, because you and I live now. For people back when this was written, what Walter goes through, the, the process that Walter goes through in coming to the realizations that he makes in this episode would have been stunning, stupefying, because they weren't watching procedural police dramas on TV every week. So you'll get to hear Walter go all Sherlock on us for a while, and it's great. But but don't forget that this was before Sherlock. You know, this is kind of new, what Wilkie Collins is doing in the section. So that's that's pretty cool. Early on in the chapter, there's a scene between Walter and Laura that just really reminded me of the yellow wallpaper. And... Uh, and, and so you can listen for that if you if you had listened to the wall, yellow wallpaper with us before. There's also, Walter does this hilarious little monologue about the clean desolation of a new town. And uh, it's just beautiful. Uh, church vestry and church architecture. Listen very closely to how the church architecture is described in this episode. It all becomes important later. But also know, for those of you who don't see churches like this very often, there's a lot of discussion about a church vestry. This is where the vestments would have been kept, the robes that the ministers would have been wearing. It's also where church records were kept. So, birth records, death records, all that kind of stuff would have been kept in that in that room as well. Um, and and it all comes to bear in, in today's episode. So, the the chapters today, I'm, I'm playing you uh, two more Walter sections today and it is going to at the end of the first chapter you're going to go oh thank goodness that heather hasn't cut it here and then at the end of the second chapter you're going to say why did she cut it here which is great because then you'll come back next week i hope you have a great time listening enjoy walter the third epoch eight when I reached home again after my interview with Mrs. Clements, I was struck by the appearance of a change in Laura. The unvarying gentleness and patience which long misfortune had tried so cruelly 
and had never conquered yet, seemed now to have suddenly failed her, insensible to all Marian's attempts to soothe and amuse her. She sat with her neglected drawing, pushed away on the table, her eyes resolutely cast down, her fingers twining and untwining themselves restlessly in her lap. Marian rose when I came in, with a silent distress in her face, waited for a moment to see if Laura would look up at my approach, whispered to me, Try if you can rouse her, and left the room. I sat down in the vacant chair, gently unclasped the poor, worn, restless fingers, and took both her hands in mine. What are you thinking of, Laura? Tell me, my darling. Try and tell me what it is. She struggled with herself and raised her eyes to mine. I can't feel happy, she said. I can't help thinking, she stopped, bent forward a little and laid her head on my shoulder with a terrible mute helplessness that struck me to the heart. Try to tell me, I repeated gently. Try to tell me why you are not happy. I'm so useless. I'm such a burden on both of you, she answered, with a weary, hopeless sigh. You work and get money, Walter, and Marian helps you. Why is there nothing I can do? You'll end in liking Marian better than you like me. You will, because I'm so helpless. Oh, don't, don't, don't treat me like a child. I raised her head and soothed away the tangled hair that fell over her face and kissed her. My poor faded flower, my lost afflicted sister. You shall help us, Laura, I said. You shall begin, my darling, today. She looked at me with a feverish eagerness, with a breathless interest that made me tremble for the new life of hope which I had called into being by those few words. I rose and set her drawing materials in order and placed them near her again. You know that I work and get money by drawing, I said. Now, you've taken such pains, now that you're so much improved, you shall begin to work and get money too. Try to finish this little sketch as nicely and prettily as you can. When it's done, I'll take it away with me, and the same person will buy it who buys all that I do. You shall keep your own earnings in your own purse, and Marian shall come to you to help us as often as she comes to me. Think how useful you're going to make yourself to both of us, and you'll soon be as happy, Laura, as the day is long. Her face grew eager and brightened into a smile. In the moment while it lasted, in the moment when she again took up the pencils that had been laid aside, she almost looked like the Laura of past days. I had rightly interpreted the first signs of a new growth and strength in her mind, unconsciously expressing themselves in the notice that she'd taken of the occupations which filled her sister's life and mine. Marian, when I told her what had passed, saw as I saw, that she was longing to assume her own little position of importance, to raise herself in her own estimation and in ours, and from that day we tenderly helped the new ambition which gave promise of the hopeful, happier future that might now not be far off. Her drawings, as she finished them, or tried to finish them, were placed in my hands. Marian took them from me and hid them carefully, and I set aside a little weekly tribute from my earnings 
to be offered to her as the price paid by strangers for the poor, faint, valueless sketches, of which I was the only purchaser. It was hard sometimes to maintain our innocent deception when she proudly brought out her purse to contribute her share towards the expenses, and wondered with serious interest whether I or she had earned the most that week. I have all those hidden drawings in my possession still. They are my treasures beyond price. The dear remembrances that I love to keep alive, the friends in past adversity that my heart will never part from, my tenderness never forget. Am I trifling here with the necessities of my task? Am I looking forward to the happier time which my narrative has not yet reached? Yes. Back again, back to the days of doubt and dread, when the spirit within me struggled hard for its life, in the icy stillness of perpetual suspense. I've paused and rested for a while on our onward course. It is not, perhaps, time wasted, if the friends who read these pages have paused and rested too. I took the first opportunity I could find of speaking to Marian in private, and of communicating to her the result of the inquiries which I had made that morning. She seemed to share the opinion on the subject of my proposed journey to Wilmingham, which Mrs. Clements had already expressed to me. Surely, Walter, she said, you hardly know enough yet to give you any hope of claiming Mrs. Catherick's confidence. Is it wise to proceed to these extremities before you have really exhausted all safer and simpler means of attaining your object? When you told me that Sir Percival and the Count were the only two people in existence who knew the exact date of Laura's journey, you forgot, and I forgot, that there was a third person who must surely know it. I mean Mrs. Rubell. Would it not be far easier and far less dangerous to insist on a confession from her than to force it from Sir Percival? It might be easier, I replied, but we are not aware of the full extent of Mrs. Rubell's connivance and interest in the conspiracy, and we are therefore not certain that the date has been impressed on her mind, as it has been assuredly impressed on the minds of Sir Percival and the Count. It is too late now to waste the time of Mrs. Rubell, which may be all-important to the discovery of the one a saleable point in Sir Percival's life. Are you thinking a little too seriously, Marian, of the risk I may run in returning to Hampshire? Are you beginning to doubt whether Sir Percival Glyde may not in the end be more than a match for me? He will not be more than your match, she replied decidedly, because he will not be helped in resisting you by the impenetrable wickedness of the Count. What led you to that conclusion? I replied, in some surprise. My own knowledge of Sir Percival's obstinacy and impatience of the Count's control, she answered. I believe he will insist on meeting you single-handed, just as he insisted at first on acting for himself at Blackwater Park. The time for suspecting the Count's interference will be the time when you have Sir Percival at your mercy. His own interests will then be directly threatened, and he will act, Walter, to terrible purpose in his own defence. We may deprive him of his weapons beforehand, I said. Some of the particulars I have heard from Mrs. Clements may yet be turned to account against him. And other means of strengthening the case may be at our disposal. 
there are passages in Mrs. Michelson's narrative which show that the Count found it necessary to place himself in communication with Mr. Fairley, and there may be circumstances which compromise him in that proceeding. While I am away, Marian, write to Mr. Fairley, and say that you want an answer describing exactly what passed between the Count and himself, and informing you also of any particulars that may have come to his knowledge at the same time in connection with his niece. Tell him that the statement you request will sooner or later be insisted on, if he shows any reluctance to furnish you with it of his own accord. The letter should be written, Walter. But are you really determined to go to Wilmingham? Absolutely determined. I will devote the next two days to earning what we want for the week to come, and on the third day I go to Hampshire. When the third day came I was ready for my journey. As it was possible that I might be absent for some little time, I arranged with Marian that we were to correspond every day, of course addressing each other by assumed names for caution's sake. As long as I heard from her regularly, I should assume that nothing was wrong. But if the morning came and brought me no letter, my return to London would take place as a matter of course by the first train. I contrived to reconcile Laura to my departure by telling her that I was going to the country to find new purchases for her drawings and for mine, and left her occupied and happy. Marian followed me downstairs to the street door. "'Remember what anxious hearts you leave here?' she whispered, as we stood together in the passage. "'Remember all the hopes that hang on your safe return? "'If strange things happen to you on this journey, if you and Sir Percival meet—' "'What makes you think we shall meet?' I asked. "'I don't know. I have fears and fancies that I cannot account for. "'Laugh at them, Walter, if you like, but for God's sake, keep your temper if you come in contact with that man.' Never fear, Marian. I answer for my self-control. With those words, we parted. I walked briskly to the station. There was a glow of hope in me. There was a growing conviction in my mind that my journey this time would not be taken in vain. It was a fine, clear, cold morning. My nerves were firmly strung, and I felt all the strength of my resolution stirring in me vigorously from head to foot. As I crossed the railway platform and looked right and left among the people congregated on it, to search for any faces among them that I knew, the doubt occurred to me whether it might not have been to my advantage if I had adopted a disguise before setting out for Hampshire. But there was something so repellent to me in the idea, something so meanly like the common herd of spies and informers, in the mere act of adopting a disguise, that I dismissed the question from consideration almost as soon as it had arisen in my mind. Even as a mere matter of expediency, the proceeding was doubtful in the extreme. If I tried the experiment at home, the landlord of the house would sooner or later discover me, and would have his suspicions aroused immediately, and if I tried it away from home, the same persons might see me by the commonest accident with the disguise and without it, and I should in that way be inviting the notice and distrust which it was my most pressing interest to avoid. In my own character I had acted thus far, and in my own character I was resolved to continue to the end. The train left me at Wilmingham early in the afternoon. Is there any wilderness of sand in the deserts of Arabia? Is there any prospect of desolation among the ruins of Palestine which can rival the repelling effect on the eye 
and the depressing influence on the mind of an English country town in the first stage of its existence and in the transition state of its prosperity. I asked myself that question as I passed through the clean desolation, the neat ugliness, the prim torpor of the streets of Wellingham, and the tradesmen who stared after me from their lonely shops, the trees that drooped helpless in their arid exile of unfinished crescents and squares, the dead house carcasses that waited in vain for the vivifying human element to animate them with the breath of life, every creature that I saw, every object that I passed, seemed to answer with one accord, the deserts of Arabia are innocent of our civilized desolation, the ruins of Palestine are incapable of our modern gloom. I inquired my way to the quarter of the town in which Mrs. Catherick lived, and on reaching it, found myself in a square of small houses one story high. There was a bare little plot of grass in the middle, protected by cheap wire fence. An elderly nursemaid and two children were standing in a corner of the enclosure, looking at a lean goat tethered to the grass. Two foot-passengers were talking together on one side of the pavement before the houses, and an idle little boy was leading an idle little dog along by a string on the other. I heard the dull tinkling of a piano in the distance, accompanied by the intermittent knocking of a hammer nearer at hand. These were all the sights and sounds of life that encountered me when I entered the square. I walked at once to the door of number 13, the number of Mrs. Catherick's house, and knocked, without waiting to consider beforehand how I might best present myself when I got in. The first necessity was to see Mrs. Catherick. I could then judge from my own observation of the safest and easiest manner to approach the object of my visit. The door was opened by a melancholy middle-aged woman servant. I gave her my card, and asked if I could see Mrs. Catherick. The card was taken into the front parlour, and the servant returned with a message requesting me to mention what my business was. "'Say, if you please, that my business relates to Mrs. Catherick's daughter,' I replied. This was the best pretext I could think of, on the spur of the moment, to account for my visit. The servant again retired to the parlour, again returned, and this time begged me, with a look of gloomy amazement, to walk in. I entered a little room with a flaring paper of the largest pattern on the walls. Chairs, tables, chiffonier, sofa, all gleamed with the glutinous brightness of cheap upholstery. On the largest table in the middle of the room stood a smart Bible, placed exactly in the centre of a red and yellow woollen mat, and at the side of the table nearest to the window, with a little knitting basket on her lap and a wheezing, blear-eyed old spaniel crouched at her feet, there sat an elderly woman, wearing a black net cap and a black silk gown, and having slate-coloured mittens on her hands. Her iron-grey hair hung in heavy bands on either side of her face. Her dark eyes looked straight forward with a hard, defiant, implacable stare. She had full, square cheeks and a long, firm chin, and thick, sensual, colourless lips. Her figure was stout and sturdy, and her manner aggressively self-possessed. This was Mrs. Catherick. "'You have come to speak to me about my daughter,' she said, before I could utter a word on my side. "'Be so good as to mention what you have to say.' The tone of her voice was hard, as defiant, as 
as implacable as the expression of her eyes. She pointed to a chair, and looked me all over attentively from head to foot as I sat down in it. I saw that my only chance with this woman was to speak to her in her own tone, and to meet her at the outset of our interview on her own ground. You are aware, I said, that your daughter has been lost. I am perfectly aware of it. Have you felt any apprehension that the misfortune of her loss might be followed by the misfortune of her death? Yes. Have you come here to tell me she is dead? I have. Why? She put that extraordinary question without the slightest change in her voice, her face, or her manner. She could not have appeared more perfectly unconcerned if I had told her of the death of the goat in the enclosure outside. Why? I repeated. Do you ask why I come here to tell you of your daughter's death? Yes. What interest have you in me or in her? How do you come to know anything about my daughter? In this way. I met her on the night when she escaped from the asylum, and I assisted her in reaching a place of safety. You did very wrong. I'm sorry to hear her mother say so. Her mother does say so. How do you know she is dead? I'm not at liberty to say how I know it, but I do know it. Are you at liberty to say how you found out my address? Certainly. I got your address from Mrs. Clements. Mrs. Clements is a foolish woman. Did she tell you to come here? She did not. Then I ask you again, why did you come? As she was determined to have her answer, I gave it to her in the plainest possible form. I came, I said, because I thought Anne Catherick's mother might have some natural interest in knowing whether she was alive or dead. Just so, said Mrs. Catherick, with additional self-possession. Had you no other motive? I hesitated. The right answer to that question was not easy to find at a moment's notice. If you have no other motive, she went on, deliberately taking off her slate-coloured mittens and rolling them up, I have only to thank you for your visit, and to say that I will not detain you here any longer. Your information would be more satisfactory if you were willing to explain how you became possessed of it. However, it justifies me, I suppose, in going into mourning. There is not much alteration necessary in my dress, as you can see. When I have changed my mittens, I shall be all in black. She searched in the pocket of her gown, drew out a pair of black lace mittens, put them on with the stoniest and steadiest composure, and then quietly crossed her hands in her lap. "'I wish you good morning,' she said. The cool contempt of her manner irritated me into directly avowing that the purpose of my visit had not been answered yet. "'I have another purpose in coming here,' I said. "'Ah, I thought so,' remarked Mrs. Catherick. "'Your daughter's death, what did she die of?' of a disease of the heart. Yes, go on. Your daughter's death has been made the pretext for inflicting serious injury on a person who is very dear to me. Two men have been concerned, to my certain knowledge, in doing that wrong. One of them is Sir Percival Glyde. Indeed. I looked attentively, to see if she flinched at the sudden mention of that name. Not a muscle of her stirred. The hard, defiant, implacable stare in her eyes never wavered for an instant. You may wonder, I went on, how the event of your daughter's death can have been made the means of inflicting injury on another person. No, 
said Mrs. Catherick. "'I don't wonder at all. This appears to be your affair. You are interested in my affairs. I am not interested in yours.' "'You may ask, then,' I persisted, "'why I mention the matter in your presence. Yes, I do ask that.' I mention it because I am determined to bring Sir Percival Glyde to account for the wickedness he has committed. And what do I have to do with your determination? You shall hear. There are certain events in Sir Percival's past which it is necessary for my purpose to be fully acquainted with. You know them, and for that reason I come to you. What events do you mean? Events that occurred in Old Wilmingham when your husband was parish clerk of that place, before the time when your daughter was born. I had reached the woman at last through the barrier of impenetrable reserve that she had tried to set up between us. I saw her temper smouldering in her eyes as plainly as I saw her hands grow restless, then unclasp themselves and begin mechanically smoothing her dress over her knees. "'What do you know of those events?' she asked. "'All that Mrs. Clements could tell me,' I answered. "'There was a momentary flush on her firm, square face, "'a momentary stillness in her restless hands, "'which seemed to betoken a coming outburst of anger "'that might throw her off her guard. "'But now, she mastered the rising irritation, "'leaned back in her chair, crossed her arms on her broad bosom, "'and, with a smile of grim sarcasm on her thick lips, "'looked at me as steadily as ever. "'Ah!' I begin to understand it all now, she said, her tamed and disciplined anger only expressing itself in the elaborate mockery of her tone and manner. You have got a grudge of your own against Sir Percival Glyde, and I must help you wreak it. I must tell you this. That and the other about Sir Percival and myself, must I? Yes, indeed. You have been prying into my private affairs. You think you found a lost woman to deal with, who lives here on sufferance and who will do anything you ask, for fear you may injure her in the opinions of the townspeople. I see through you and your precious speculation. I do, and it amuses me. Ha, ha! She stopped for a moment. Her arms tightened over her bosom, and she laughed to herself, a hard, harsh, angry laugh. You don't know how I've lived in this place. What I've done in this place, Mr. What's-Your-Name, she went on, I'll tell you before I ring the bell and have you shown out. I came here a wronged woman. I came here robbed of my character and determined to claim it back. I have been years and years about it, and I have claimed it back. I have matched the respectable people fairly and openly on their own ground. If they say anything against me now, they must say it in secret. They can't say it. They daren't say it openly. I stand high enough in this town to be out of your reach. The clergyman bows to me. Ha, ha! You didn't bargain for that when you came here. Go to the church and inquire about me. You will find Mrs. Catherick has her sitting like the rest of them, and pays her rent on the day it's due. Go to the town hall. There's a petition lying there, a petition of the respectable inhabitants against allowing a circus to come and perform here to corrupt our morals, yes, our morals. I signed that petition this morning. Go to the bookseller's shop. The clergyman's Wednesday evening lectures on justification by faith are publishing there by subscription. I am down on the list. The doctor's wife only put a shilling in the plate at our last charity sermon. I put half a crown. Mr. Churchwarden Soward held the plate and bowed to me. 
ten years ago he told Pigram, the chemist, that I ought to be whipped out of the town on a cart's tail. Is your mother alive? Has she got a better Bible on her table than I have got on mine? Does she stand better with her tradespeople than I do with mine? Has she always lived within her income? I have always lived within mine. Ah, there is the clergyman coming along the square. Look, Mr. What's your name? Look, if you please. She started up with the activity of a young woman and went to the window, waited till the clergyman passed and bowed to him solemnly. The clergyman ceremoniously raised his hat and walked on. Mrs. Catherick returned to her chair and looked at me with a grimmer sarcasm than ever. There, she said. What do you think of that for a woman with a lost character? How does your speculation look now? The singular manner in which she had chosen to assert herself, the extraordinary practical vindication of her position in the town which she had just offered, had so perplexed me that I listened to her in silent surprise. I was not the less resolved, however, to make another effort to throw her off her guard. If the woman's fierce temper once got beyond her control, and once flamed out on me, she might yet say the words which could put a clue in my hands. "'How does your speculation look now?' she repeated. "'Exactly as it looked when I first came in,' I answered. "'I don't doubt the position you have gained in the town, and I don't wish to assail it even if I could. I came here because Sir Percival Glyde is, to my certain knowledge, your enemy, as well as mine. If I have a grudge against him, you have a grudge against him too. You may deny it if you like.' You may distrust me as much as you please. You may be as angry as you will, but, of all the women in England, you, if you have any sense of injury, are the woman who ought to help me crush that man. Crush him for yourself, she said. Then come back here and see what I say to you. She spoke those words as she had not spoken yet, quickly, fiercely, vindictively. I had stirred in its lair the serpent, hatred of years. But only for a moment. Like a lurking reptile, it leaped up at me as she eagerly bent forward towards the place in which I was sitting. Like a lurking reptile, it dropped out of sight again as she instantly resumed her former position in the chair. You won't trust me, I said. No. You are afraid? Do I look as if I was? You are afraid of Sir Percival Glyde? Am I? Her colour was rising. Her hands were at work again, smoothing her gown. I pressed the point further and further home. I went on without allowing her a moment of delay. Sir Percival has a high position in the world, I said. It would be no wonder if you were afraid of him. Sir Percival is a powerful man, a baronet, the possessor of a fine estate and a descendant of a great family. She amazed me beyond expression by suddenly bursting out laughing. Yes, she repeated, in tones of the bitterest, steadiest contempt, a baronet, the possessor of a fine estate, the descendant of a great family. Yes, indeed, a great family, especially by the mother's side. There was no time to reflect on the words that had just escaped her. There was only time to feel that they were well worth thinking over the moment I left the house. I'm not here to dispute with you about family questions. I said, I know nothing of Sir Percival's mother. And you know as little of Sir Percival himself, she interposed sharply. I advise you not to be too sure of that, I rejoined. I know some things about him, and I suspect many more. What do you suspect? 
I'll tell you what I don't suspect. I don't suspect him of being Anne's father. She started to her feet and came close up to me with a look of fury. How dare you talk to me about Anne's father? How dare you say who was her father and who wasn't? She broke out, her face quivering, her voice trembling with passion. The secret between you and Sir Percival is not that secret, I persisted. The mystery which darkens Sir Percival's life was not born with your daughter's birth and has not died with your daughter's death. She drew back a step. Go, she said, and pointed sternly to the door. There was no thought of the child in your heart or his, I went on, determined to press her back to her last defences. There was no bond of guilty love between you and him when you held those stolen meetings, when your husband found you whispering together under the vestry of the church. Her pointing hand instantly dropped to her side, and the deep flush of anger from her face while I spoke. I saw the change pass over her. I saw that hard, firm, fearless, self-possessed woman quail under a terror which her utmost resolution was not strong enough to resist when I said those last five words. The Vestry of the Church. For a minute or more, we stood looking at each other in silence. I spoke first. Do you still refuse to trust me? I asked. She could not call the colour that had left it back to her face, but she steadied her voice, and she recovered the defiant self-possession of her manner when she answered me. I do refuse she said. Do you still tell me to go? Yes. Go and never come back. I walked to the door, waited a moment before I opened it, and turned around to look at her again. I may have news to bring you of Sir Percival, which you don't expect, I said. In that case I shall come back. There is no news of Sir Percival that I don't expect, except— She stopped— her pale face darkened, and she stole back with a quiet, stealthy, cat-like step to her chair. "'Except the news of his death,' she said, sitting down again with the mockery of a smile just hovering on her cruel lips, and the furtive light of hatred lurking deep in her steady eyes. As I opened the door of the room to go out, she looked round at me quickly. The cruel smile slowly widened her lips.' She eyed me with a strange, stealthy interest from head to foot. An unutterable expectation showed itself wickedly all over her face. Was she speculating in the secrecy of her own heart? On my youth and strength, on the force of my sense of injury, and the limits of my self-control? And was she considering the lengths to which they might carry me, if Sir Percival and I ever chanced to meet? The bare doubt that it might be so drove me from her presence and silenced even the common forms of farewell on my lips. Without a word more on my side or on hers, I left the room. As I opened the outer door, I saw the same clergyman who had already passed the house once, about to pass it again, on his way back through the square. I waited on the doorstep to let him go by, and looked round as I did so at the parlour window. Mrs. Catherick had heard his footsteps approaching, in the silence of that lonely place, and she was on her feet at the window again, waiting for him. 
not all the strength of all the terrible passions I had aroused in that woman's heart could loosen her desperate hold on the one fragment of social consideration which years of resolute effort had just dragged within her grasp. There she was again, not a minute after I had left her, placed purposely in a position which made it a matter of common courtesy on the part of the clergyman to bow to her for a second time. He raised his hat once more. I saw the hard, ghastly face behind the window soften and light up with gratified pride. I saw the head with the grim black cap bend ceremoniously in return. The clergyman had bowed to her, and in my presence, twice in one day. The Third Epoch 9. I left the house feeling that Mrs. Catherick had helped me a step forward in spite of herself. Before I had reached the turning which led out of the square, my attention was suddenly aroused by the sound of a door closing behind me. I looked round, and saw an undersized man in black on the doorstep of a house, which, as well as I could judge, stood next to Mrs. Catherick's place of abode. Next to it, on the side nearest to me, the man did not hesitate a moment about the direction he should take. He rapidly advanced towards the turning at which I had stopped. I recognised him as the lawyer's clerk, who had preceded me in my visit to Blackwater Park, and who had tried to pick a quarrel with me when I had asked him if I could see the house. I waited where I was to ascertain whether his object was to come to close quarters and speak on this occasion. To my surprise, he passed on rapidly without saying a word, without even looking up in my face as he went by. This was such a complete inversion of the course of proceeding which I had every reason to expect on his part, that my curiosity, or rather my suspicion, was aroused, and I determined on my side to keep him cautiously in view, and to discover what the business might be in which he was now employed. Without caring whether he saw me or not, I walked after him. He never looked back, and he led me straight through the streets to the railway station. The train was on the point of starting, and Two or three passengers who were late were clustering round the small opening through which the tickets were issued. I joined them, and distinctly heard the lawyer's clerk demand a ticket for the Blackwater station. I satisfied myself that he had actually left by the train before I came away. There was only one interpretation I could place on what I had just seen and heard. I had unquestionably observed the man leaving a house which closely adjoined Mrs. Catherick's residence. He had probably been placed there by Sir Percival's directions, as a lodger, in anticipation of my inquiries leading me sooner or later to communicate with Mrs. Catherick. He had doubtless seen me go in and come out, and he had hurried away to the first train to make his report at Blackwater Park, to which place Sir Percival would naturally betake himself, knowing what he evidently knew of my movements, in order to be ready on the spot if I returned to Hampshire. Before many days were over, there seemed every likelihood now that he and I might meet. Whatever results events might be destined to produce, I resolved to pursue my own course, straight to the end in view, without stopping or turning aside for Sir Percival or for anyone. The great responsibility which weighed on me heavily in London, the responsibility of so guiding my slightest actions as to prevent them from leading accidentally to the discovery of Laura's place of refuge was removed, now that I was in Hampshire. I could go and come as I pleased at Wilmingham, and if I chanced to fail in observing any necessary precautions, the immediate results at least would affect no one but myself. 
When I left the station, the winter evening was beginning to close in. There was little hope of continuing my inquiries after dark to any useful purpose in a neighbourhood that was strange to me. Accordingly, I made my way to the nearest hotel, and ordered my dinner and my bed. This done, I wrote to Marian to tell her that I was safe and well, and that I had fair prospects of success. I had directed her on leaving home to address the first letter she wrote to me, the letter I expected to receive the next morning, to the post-office, Wellingham, and I now begged her to send the second day's letter to the same address. I could easily receive it by writing to the postmaster if I happened to be away from the town when it arrived. The coffee-room of the hotel, as it grew late in the evening, became a perfect solitude. I was left to reflect on what I had accomplished that afternoon, as uninterruptedly as if the house had been my own. Before I retired to rest, I had attentively thought over my extraordinary interview with Mrs. Catherick from beginning to end, and had verified at my leisure the conclusions which I had hastily drawn in the earlier part of the day. The vestry of Old Wilmingham Church was the starting point from which my mind slowly worked its way back through all that I had heard Mrs. Catherick say, and through all I had seen Mrs. Catherick do. At the time when the neighbourhood of the vestry was first referred to in my presence by Mrs. Clements, I had thought it the strangest and most unaccountable of all places for Sir Percival to select for a clandestine meeting with the clerk's wife. Influenced by this impression and by no other, I had mentioned the vestry of the church before Mrs. Catherick on pure speculation. It represented one of the minor peculiarities of the story which occurred to me while I was speaking. I was prepared for her answering me confusedly or angrily, but the blank terror that seized her when I said the words took me completely by surprise. I had long before associated Sir Percival's secret with the concealment of a serious crime which Mrs. Catherick knew of, but I had gone no further than this. Now the woman's paroxysm of terror associated the crime, either directly or indirectly, with the vestry, and convinced me that she had been more than the mere witness of it. She was also the accomplice, beyond a doubt. What had been the nature of the crime? Surely there was a contemptible side to it, as well as a dangerous side, or Mrs. Catherick would not have repeated my own words, referring to Sir Percival's rank and power with such marked disdain as she had certainly displayed. It was a contemptible crime, then, and a dangerous crime, and she had shared in it, and it was associated with the vestry of the church. The next consideration to be disposed of led me a step further from this point. Mrs. Catherick's undisguised contempt for Sir Percival plainly extended to his mother as well. She had referred with the bitterest sarcasm to the great family he had descended from, especially on the mother's side. What did this mean? There appeared to be only two explanations for it. Either his mother's birth had been low, or his mother's reputation was damaged by some hidden flaw with which Mrs. Catherick and Sir Percival were both privately acquainted. I could only put the first explanation to the test by looking at the register of her marriage, and so ascertaining her maiden name and her parentage as a preliminary to further inquiries. On the other hand, if the second case supposed were the true one, what had been the flaw in her reputation? Remembering the account which Marian had given me of Sir Percival's father and mother, and of the suspiciously unsocial, secluded life they had both led, 
I now asked myself whether it might not be possible that his mother had never been married at all. Here again the register might, by offering written evidence of the marriage, prove to me, at any rate, that this doubt had no foundation in truth. But where was the register to be found? At this point I took up the conclusions which I had previously formed, and the same mental process which had discovered the locality of the concealed crime now lodged the register also in the vestry of Old Birmingham Church. These were the results of my interview with Mrs. Catherick. These were the various considerations all steadily converging to one point, which decided the course of my proceedings on the next day. The morning was cloudy and lowering, but no rain fell. I left my bag at the hotel to wait there until I called for it, and, after inquiring the way, set forth on foot for Old Birmingham Church. It was a walk of rather more than two miles, the ground rising slowly all the way. On the highest point stood the church, an ancient weather-beaten building, with heavy buttresses at its sides, and a clumsy square tower in front. The vestry at the back was built out from the church, and seemed to be of the same age. Round the building at intervals appeared the remains of the village which Mrs. Clements had described to me as her husband's place of abode in the former years, and which the principal inhabitants had long since deserted for the new town. Some of the empty houses had been dismantled to their outer walls, some had been left to decay with time, and some were still inhabited by persons evidently of the poorest class. It was a dreary scene. And yet, in the worst aspect of its ruin, not so dreary as the modern town that I had just left. Here there was the brown, breezy sweep of the surrounding fields for the eye to repose on. Here the trees, leafless as they were, still varied the monotony of the prospect, and helped the mind to look forward to summer-time and shade. As I moved away from the back of the church, and passed some of the dismantled cottages in search of a person who might direct me to the clerk, I saw two men saunter out after me from behind the wall. The tallest of the two, a stout muscular man in the dress of a gamekeeper, was a stranger to me. The other was one of the men who had followed me in London on the day when I left Mr. Kyle's office. I had taken particular notice of him at the time, and felt sure that I was not mistaken in identifying the fellow on this occasion. Neither he nor his companion attempted to speak to me, and both kept themselves at a respectful distance but the motive of their presence in the neighbourhood of the church was plainly apparent. It was exactly as I had supposed. Sir Percival was already prepared for me. My visit to Mrs. Catherick had been reported to him the evening before, and those two men had been placed on the lookout near the church, in anticipation of my appearance at Old Wilmingham. If I had wanted any further proof of my investigations, had taken the right direction at last, the plan now adopted for watching me would have supplied it. I walked on, away from the church, until I reached one of the inhabited houses, with a patch of kitchen garden attached to it, on which a labourer was at work. He directed me to the clerk's abode, a cottage at some little distance off, standing by itself on the outskirts of the forsaken village. The clerk was indoors, and was just putting on his greatcoat. He was a cheerful, familiar, loudly talkative old man, with a very poor opinion, as I soon discovered, of the place in which he lived. And a happy sense of superiority to his neighbours in virtue of the great personal distinction of having once been in London. "'It's well you came so early, sir,' said the old man, when I had mentioned the object of my visit. "'I should have been away in ten minutes or more.' 
parish business, uh, and a goodish long trot before it's all done for a man at my age. But bless you, I'm strong in my legs still. As long as a man don't give it his legs, there's a great deal of work left in him. Don't you think so yourself, sir? He took his keys down while he was talking from a hook behind the fireplace and locked his cottage door behind us. Nobody at home to keep house for me, said the clerk, with a cheerful sense of perfect freedom from all fam family encumbrances. My wife's in the churchyard there, and my children are all married. Wretched place this, isn't it, sir? But the parish is a large one. Every man couldn't get through the business as I do. There's learning, does it? And I've had my share and a little more. I can talk the Queen's English, God bless the Queen. And that's more than most of the people about here can do. You're from London, I suppose, sir. I've been in London a matter of five and twenty year ago. What's the news there now, if you please? Chattering on in this way, he led me back to the vestry. I looked about to see if the two spies were still in sight. They were not visible anywhere, and having discovered my application to the clerk, they had probably concealed themselves where they could watch my next proceedings in perfect freedom. The vestry door was of stout old oak, studded with strong nails, and the clerk put his large, heavy key into the lock with the air of a man who knew that he had a difficulty to encounter, and was not quite certain, creditably, of conquering it. "'I'm obliged to bring you this way, sir,' he said, "'because the door from the vestry to the church is bolted on the vestry side. "'We might have got in through the church otherwise. "'This is a perverse lock, if ever there was one yet. "'It's big enough for a prison door. "'It's been hampered over again and again, "'and it ought to be changed for a new one. "'I've mentioned that to the church warden fifty times over at least, "'and he's always saying, "'I'll see about it.' "'And he never does, Z. "'Ah! "'It's sort of a lost corner, this place. "'Not like London, is it, sir? "'Bless you, we all asleep here. "'We don't march with the times.' "'After some twisting and turning of the key, "'the heavy lock yielded, and he opened the door. "'The vestry was larger than I should have supposed it to be, "'judging from the outside only. "'It was a dim, mouldy, melancholy old room, "'with a low, raftered ceiling.' Round two sides of it, the sides nearest to the interior of the church, ran heavy wooden presses, worm-eaten and gaping with age. Hooked to the inner corner of one of these presses hung several surplices, all bulging out at their lower ends in an irreverent-looking bundle of limp drapery. Below the surplices on the floor stood three packing-cases with the lids half off, half on, and the straw profusely bursting out of their cracks and crevices in every direction. Behind them, in the corner, was a litter of dusty papers, some large, rolled up like architect's plans, some loosely strung together on files like bills or letters. The room had once been lighted by a small side window, but this had been bricked up, and the lantern skylight was now substituted for it. The atmosphere of the place was heavy and mouldy, being rendered additionally oppressive by the closing of the door which led to the church. This door also was composed of solid oak, and was bolted at the top and bottom on the vestry side. "'We might be tidier, mightn't we, sir?' said the cheerful clerk. "'But when you're in a lost corner of a place like this, what are you to do?' "'Why, look here now. Just look at these packing-cases. There they've been for a year or more, ready to go down to London. There they are littering the place, and there they'll stop as long as the nails hold them together. 
I tell you what, sir, as I said before, this is not London. We are all asleep here. Bless you, we don't march with the times. What is there in the packing cases? I asked. Bits of old wood carvings from the pulpit, panels from the chancel, and images from the organ loft, said the clerk. Portraits of the twelve apostles in wood, and not a whole nose among them, all broken and worm-eaten, and crumbling to dust at the edges, brittle as crockery, sir, and as old as the church, if not older. And why were they going to London? To be repaired? That's it, sir, to be repaired. And where they were past repair, to be copied in sound wood. But bless you, the money fell short, and there they are, waiting for new subscriptions, and nobody to subscribe. It was all done a year ago, sir. Six gentlemen dined together about it at the hotel in the new town. They made speeches and passed resolutions, and put their names down, and printed off thousands of prospectuses. Beautiful prospectuses, sir, all flourished over with gothic devices in red ink, saying it was a disgrace not to restore the church and repair the famous carvings, and so on. There are the prospectuses that couldn't be distributed, and the architect's plans and estimates, and the whole correspondence which set everybody at loggerheads and ended in a dispute, all down together in that corner, behind the packing cases. The money dribbled in a little at first, but what can you expect out of London? There was just enough, you know, to pack the broken carvings and get the estimates and pay the printer's bill, and after that there wasn't a halfpenny left. There the things are, as I said before. We have nowhere else to put them. Nobody in a new town cares about accommodating us. We're in a lost corner. And this is an untidy vestry, and who's to help it? That's what I want to know. My anxiety to examine the register did not dispose me to offer much encouragement to the old man's talkativeness. I agreed with him that nobody could help the untidiness of the vestry, and then suggested that we should proceed to our business without more delay. "'Aye, aye, the marriage register, to be sure,' said the clerk, taking a little bunch of keys from his pocket. "'How far do you want to go back, sir?' Marion had informed me of Sir Percival's age at the time when we had spoken together of his marriage engagement with Laura. She had then described him as being forty-five years old. Calculating back from this, and making due allowance for the year that had passed since I had gained my information, I found that he must have been born in eighteen hundred and four and that I might safely start on my search through the register from that date. "'I want to begin with the year 1804,' I said. "'Which way after that, sir?' asked the clerk. "'Forwards to our time, or backwards away from us?' "'Backwards from 1804.' He opened the door of one of the presses, the press from the side of which the surplices were hanging, and produced a large volume in greasy brown leather. I was struck by the insecurity of the place in which the register was kept. The door of the press was warped and cracked with age, and the lock was of the smallest and commonest kind. I could have forced it easily with a walking-stick I carried in my hand. "'Is that considered a sufficiently secure place for the register?' I inquired. "'Surely a book of such importance as this ought to be protected by a better lock, and kept carefully in an iron safe.' "'Well, now, that's curious,' said the clerk shutting up the book again just after he'd opened it, and smacking his hand cheerfully on the cover. Those were the very words my old master was always saying years and years ago when I was a lad. Why isn't the register, meaning this register here under my hand, why isn't it kept in an iron safe? If I've heard him say that once, I've heard him say it a hundred times. He was a solicitor in those days, sir, 
who had the appointment of vestry clerk to this church. A fine, hearty old gentleman, and the most particular man breathing. As long as he lived, he kept a copy of this book in his office at Knowlesbury, and had it posted up regular from time to time, to correspond with the fresh entries here. You'd hardly think it, but he had his own appointed days, once or twice in every quarter, for riding over to this church on his old white pony to check the copy by the register with his own eyes and hands. How do I know, he used to say, how do I know that the register in this vestry may not be stolen or destroyed? Why isn't it kept in an iron safe? Why can't I make other people as careful as I am myself? Some of these days there will be an accident happen, and when the register's lost, then the parish will find out the value of my copy. He used to take his pinch of snuff after that, and look about him as bold as a lord. Arr, the like of him for doing business isn't easy to find now. You may go to London and not match him, even there. Which year did you say, sir? Eighteen hundred and what? Eighteen hundred and four, I replied, mentally resolving to give the old man no more opportunities of talking until my examination of the register was over. The clerk put on his spectacles and turned over the leaves of the register, carefully wetting his finger and thumb at every third page. Here it is, sir, he said, with another cheerful smack on the open volume. There is the year you want. As I was ignorant of the month in which Sir Percival was born, I began my backward search with the early part of the year. The register book was of the old-fashioned kind, the entries being all made on blank pages in manuscript, and the divisions which separated them being indicated by ink lines drawn across the page at the close of each entry. I reached the beginning of the year 1804 without encountering the marriage, and then travelled back through December 1803, through November and October, through—no, not through September also. Under the heading of that month, in the year— I found the marriage. I looked carefully at the entry. It was at the bottom of a page, and was, for want of room, compressed into a smaller space than occupied by the marriages above. The marriages immediately before it was impressed on my attention by the circumstance of the bridegroom's Christian name being the same as my own. The entry immediately following it, on the top of the next page, was noticeable in another way from the large space it occupied the record in this case registering the marriages of two brothers at the same time. The register of the marriage of Sir Felix Glyde was in no respect remarkable except for the narrowness of the space in which it was compressed at the bottom of the page. The information about his wife was the usual information given in such cases. She was described as Cecilia Jane Elster of Parkview Cottages, Knowlesbury, only daughter of the late Patrick Elster, Esquire formerly of Bath. I noted down these particulars in my pocket-book, feeling as I did so both doubtful and disheartened about my next proceedings. The secret, which I had believed until this moment to be within my grasp, now seemed further from my reach than ever. What suggestions of any mystery unexplained had arisen out of my visit to the vestry? I saw no suggestions anywhere. What progress had I made towards discovering the suspected stain on the reputation of Sir Percival's mother? The one fact I had ascertained vindicated her reputation. Fresh doubts, fresh difficulties, fresh delays began to open before me in interminable prospect. What was I to do next? The one immediate resource left to me appeared to be this. I might institute inquiries about Miss 
Ulster of Knowlesbury, on the chance of advancing towards the main object of my investigation by first discovering the secret of Mrs. Catherick's contempt for Sir Percival's mother. "'Have you found what you wanted, sir?' asked the clerk as I closed the register book. "'Yes,' I replied. "'But I have some inquiries still to make. I suppose the clergyman who officiated here in the year 1803 is no longer alive?' "'No, no, sir. He was dead three or four years before I came here, and that was as long ago as the year twenty-seven. "'I got this place, sir,' persisted my talkative old friend, "'through the clerk before me leaving it. "'They say he was driven out of house and home by his wife, "'and she's living still in the new town there. "'I don't know the rights of the story myself. "'All I know is I got the place. "'Mr. Wansborough got it for me, "'the son of my old master that I was telling you of. "'He's a free, pleasant gentleman as ever lives. "'Writes to the hounds, keeps his pointers and all that.' His vestry clerk, here now, and his father was before him. "'Did you not tell me that your former master lived at Knowlesbury?' I asked, calling to mind the long story about the precise gentleman of the old school with which my talkative friend had wearied me before he opened the register book. "'Yes, to be sure, sir,' replied the clerk. "'Old Mr. Wansborough lived at Knowlesbury. Young Mr. Wansborough lives there, too.' "'You said just now that he was vestry clerk, like his father before him.' "'I'm not quite sure that I know what a vestry clerk is.' "'Don't you indeed, sir. "'And you come from London, too. "'Every parish church, you know, "'has a vestry clerk and a parish clerk. "'The parish clerk is a man like me, "'except that I've got a deal more learning than most of them, "'though I don't boast of it. "'And the vestry clerk is a sort of appointment "'that the lawyers get. "'And if there's any business to be done for the vestry, "'why, they go and do it. "'It's just the same in London.' Every parish church there has got its vestry clerk, and you may take my word for it, he's sure to be a lawyer. Then young Mr. Wansborough is a lawyer, I suppose. Of course he is, sir, a lawyer in High Street, Knowlesbury, the old offices that his father had before him. The number of times I've swept those offices out and seen the old gentleman come trotting into business on his white pony, looking right and left all down the street, and nodding to everybody. Bless you, he was a popular character. He'd have done in London. How far is it to Knowlesbury from this place? Oh, a long stretch, sir, said the clerk, with that exaggerated idea of distances, and that vivid perception of difficulties in getting from place to place, which is peculiar to all country people. Nigh on five mile, I can tell you. It was still early in the forenoon. There was plenty of time for a walk to Knowlesbury and back to Welmingham. There was no person, probably, in the town who was fitter to assist my quarries about the character and position of Sir Percival's mother before her marriage than the local solicitor. Resolving to go at once to Knowlesbury on foot, I led the way out of the vestry. "'Thank you kindly, sir,' said the clerk, as I slipped my little present into his hand. "'Are you really going to walk all the way to Knowlesbury and back? Well, you're strong in your legs, too. And what a blessing that is, isn't it? There's the road, you can't miss it. I wish I was going your way. It's pleasant to meet with a gentleman from London at the lost corner like this.' One hears the news. Wish you good morning, sir. Thank you kindly once more. We parted. As I left the church behind me, I looked back, and there were the two men again on the road below, with a third in their company, that third person being the short man in black, whom I had traced to the railway station the evening before. The three stood talking together for a little while, then separated. The man in black went away by himself towards Welmingham, 
The other two remained together, evidently waiting to follow me as soon as I walked on. I proceeded on my way without letting the fellows see that I took any special notice of them. They caused me no conscious irritation of feeling at that moment. On the contrary, they rather revived my sinking hopes. In the surprise of discovering the evidence of the marriage, I had forgotten the inference I had first drawn on perceiving the men in the neighbourhood of the vestry. Their reappearance reminded me that Sir Percival had anticipated my visit to Old Birmingham Church as the next result of my interview with Mrs. Catherick. Otherwise he would never have placed his spies there to wait for me. Smoothly and fairly as appearances looked in the vestry, there was something wrong beneath them. There was something in the register book, for aught I knew, that I had not discovered yet. All right, my modern listeners. So for you, you should have a pretty clear picture of probably where this is going. Wilkie Collins is still really out there on a limb by himself doing a story like this. I mean, there were kind of uh, sensational novels of the past, but not these kind of mystery ones. There were, you know, Tess of the Dubervilles, you know, oh, horrors, what happens to Mall Flanders, stuff like that. But nothing like this, where we're piecing together this, this tragedy. So next week, you'll find out even more information. And we're closing in on the end of the book surprisingly. I know. The last thing I wanted to let you know, there will be no more Mr. Doofus this week. You'll have to wait. But the boys really enjoyed hearing feedback from you about what you thought of their fabulous doofusing. Uh, there will be on the iPod iTouch droid app this week, there will be a short story. It is a not for children short story, but, uh, but I am including that as an extra for you. And... Uh, on that note, we'll have more doofus as soon as the boys can get their sound effects going. Don't forget, if you can help Massachusetts, please do. You can also contact Joy Lynn, I'm sure, on Ravelry, J-O-I-L-Y-N-N, and see if she knows of anybody else who needs help. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support CraftLit. Visit Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit and Knit Circus online magazine offering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out the latest issue at www.knitcircus.com And what would Madame Defarge knit? A new book of knit and crochet patterns coming to you from the Craftlet family. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlet supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.com. Craftlit can also be accessed by its own Android and iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.